This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to Trashy Divorces. Hello, everyone. My name is Stacy. I'm Alicia. Thanks for joining us for another week of Trashy Divorces and spending your time with us. We have some great stories for you this week. Yes, we are taking our musical theme from the Roy Orbison classic, Pretty Woman. Oh, it really does work in every it way really, here. It really, really does work in Stacey, every way. Stacey, this week you're covering... I have an arc. I have a journey. It's Cindy Crawford, <laughs> Richard Gere, and then his second wife, Carrie Lowell. There were just... There's just trashy sprinkles all over everything there. It's lovely. It's definitely a spiderweb kind of episode. You have a legend. Another whole heap of spiderwebs on a different hill. We're welcoming Dame Joan Collins into the Trashy Divorces Hall of Fame today mm-hmm. with her five marriages, four divorces. She's classy AF. Whoa. Her divorces are trashy. Perfect. Perfect, perfect. All right, let's talk about Patreon real quick before we dive into the waters of the trashy lake, lake refuse. (laughs) This week, we had the last of our Queens podcast crossovers with the sixth, the musical soundtrack, trashy tidbits as always. Ooh, I covered X-Files, George Reeves and Tony Mannix and looked at his mysterious death. Yeah, it was cool. That was a fun true crime Hollywood True crime, real Hollywood, I don't know, whatever, golden age. Superman. Superman. (laughs) October, fun with Dunn is back. So excited about this. The first episode concentrated on Mart Crowley and his groundbreaking 1967 play, The Boys in the Band. And you brought us a new series this week, Trashy Trashy Justice. Justice. Yes, we looked at uh, perhaps the most bigoted Supreme Court justice in American history, a guy named James McReynolds. That was a ride. <laughs> he was a nightmare. So let's pull out our magic mirror and give some big thanks to our new patrons before we get started. Yes. Thank you so much to Jodel K, Kirsty, Louise C, Nikki C, Anna O, Kim R, Kate M, and Denise B. Ooh, we had some new super supporters too this week. Thank you to Carrie A, Sarah L, Sarah A, Jessica B, and Marina. And we have two gigantic super, super (laughs) supporters, Karen S. and Kimberly K. These two trash pandas have upgraded and have the honor of picking out a trashy divorce coming to you soon on the Sunday feed. I have been notified of one of those and it is really, really good. I'm excited to hear about it. So thank you to all of our patrons. You keep this trashy machine going and we are grateful to you. And now, without further ado... Shall we go, go, go? So, Stacey, you got to tell us some pretty, pretty people this week. Pretty, pretty, pretty people. Yes, yes, yes. Once upon a time, the actor Richard Gere met the model Cindy Crawford, and the universe was nearly destroyed by a singularity caused by the collision of beautiful people. <laughs> The relationship, which was celebrated as the sexiest couple alive and other 
various that things. Was big news. Was not built to last. However, one of these people craved marriage, stability, and a relatively normal home life. And eventually she convinced him that they should get married. The other of these people was not really ready to settle down. And more importantly, perhaps the 17-year age difference between them wow. <laughs> made them a less than ideal fit. I gotta know the story. Talk to me. Sure. Uh, so one of these people has gone on to uh, have a lovely and fairly normal life with a new spouse and children. The other one has gone on to two more marriages, a long and trashy divorce, and once sold a Hamptons estate to Matt Lauer. So let's <laughs> let's get into let's it. Let's get into it. The year was 1988, and star photographer Herb Ritz was throwing a backyard barbecue at his house. It was wall-to-wall celebrities. And 22-year-old Cindy Crawford, despite having already appeared on more than 300 magazine covers, was starstruck. Across the room, or perhaps across the yard, she spots him. Oh. 39-year-old Richard Gere. Oh, my. An honest-to-God sex symbol who had become a huge star after the movie's American Gigolo and an officer and a gentleman. They chatted. It was nice. They made plans. (laughs) Those plans would end up filling the next six years of their lives. Richard Tiffany Gear, really, (laughs) was born August 30th. Theodore Evelyn Mosby? Yes. His middle name is Tiffany? Mm -hmm. God bless. Uh Born August 31st, 1949. He's a Virgo. Ah. Born in Philly, mostly raised in Syracuse. Both of his parents are Mayflower descendants, which I find just such a weird little factoid. Really? I had no idea. Um, So I guess technically Richard Gere is somewhere in the line to assume the American throne. I'm not sure, really. I don't know where that is in succession. (laughs) He was a musical child who loved gymnastics, ended up at UMass Amherst on a gymnastics scholarship studying philosophy. And I feel like... (laughs) I know why. I feel like... He's a philosopher gymnast? Well, now he's like a meditating Buddhist and yoga dude. So yeah, it was remarkable. I really just feel like that sentence says everything about Richard Gere. He's still a musician. He's still like... End of story. Done. Trashy divorces out. Finito. (laughs) All right. He bailed on college after a couple years, started auditioning for parts in plays. I mean, obviously, the big money is in theater. (laughs) Theater. He had some lean years. Surprisingly, okay. but by the mid-70s, Hollywood had noticed him. And after several strong performances, 1980s American Gigolo really cemented him as an actor who could hold the screen. Also, I guess he was naked in that picture a lot, so women everywhere were like, I like this Richard Gere fellow quite a oh, lot. yeah, it's girls' night at the movie, honey. See you later. Yeah. So as with any career, uh, you know, the next decade was a mixed bag. But obviously his star would rise again with movies like Pretty Woman, Summersby, Runaway Bride, all kinds of right, n- 90s right. hits. Cynthia Ann Crawford, meanwhile, was born February 20th, 1966. Oh, Pisces. She's a Pisces. Pisces Virgo. In DeKalb, Illinois, where she grew up. Opposing as, signs. Are they? Just FYI, yeah. I don't think astrology was their problem. <laughs> Probably not. Just interesting to note. As a junior in high school, a local photographer spotted her, and she earned her first cover on the DeKalb Night Weekly. It was 1982. She enjoyed the experience. She got outstanding feedback from friends and strangers, so she entered Elite Model Management's prospecting contest at the age of 17, and they signed her. Not surprisingly. 
So she graduated from high school in 1984 as valedictorian. No way, really? Yeah, she earned an academic scholarship to Northwestern University where she planned to study chemical engineering. Well, of course she did. This is a story of contradictions. I, I did not know these things about Cindy Crawford. Sharp as a tack. Life suddenly was in full flower. Obviously, college was getting in the way of what was turning into an incredibly lucrative modeling career. As it does. And she's not an idiot, so college (laughs) was not that important. Moves to New York. Never looked back. She appeared on the cover of Vogue, People, Harper's, Elle, Cosmo, Allure, and basically every other magazine on Earth except maybe like Penny Saver. I don't know. She was probably on Penny Saver too, babe. She might have been on Penny Saver too. So it was through these cover shoots that Cindy Crawford meets her Brits. Got it. The photographer Mm -hmm. who had been friends with Richard Gere since before Richard Gere was famous. They went way back. back. from the philosopher days. Maybe later than that. In fact, one of uh, Herb's first shots to land in publications was of gear photographed in jeans, plain t-shirt, um, cigarette dangling from his lips in front of a 50s Buick jacked up in a garage. It was James Dean for a new generation. Well, Nat. And Herb would go on to be one of the powerhouse photographers of the supermodel era. Like, he's actually, his his work is credited with, like, ushering in the supermodel oh, yeah. era. Legendary. Yeah. And it was actually Herb's mother, Shirley Ritz, who made the introductions at her son's barbecue that day. Oh, my. Richard, have you met Cindy? She's oh. going to be a star. <laughs> so, fun fact about Herb Ritz, he was also openly gay, and perhaps that will figure into one of the odder elements of the Gear Crawford relationship. See, from the time they started dating... Uh, Into their 1991 marriage, and until they split in 1995, whispers abounded that one or both of them was gay. Gear had always been open to taking gay roles, even very early in his career when it theoretically could have hurt him. And in 1993, he appeared as a choreographer who learns he has AIDS in HBO's adaptation of the Randy Schultz book, and the band played on. For her part, Cindy Crawford was part of a spectacularly awesome Vanity Fair spread oh, the same yeah, year, she was. where she, in a racy mm. one piece, is shaving mm. singer Katie Lang's yeah. face in a barber's chair with Lang looking super dapper in her tailored menswear. Yeah, really excellent photo shoot shot by her Brits, changing the lives of adolescent lesbians everywhere. Everywhere, yeah, shot by her Brits, who definitely knew how to let his subjects have fun with it. Cindy loved the whole thing, telling British Elle magazine, I've got the cleanest image in the world. It's good if there's a little dirt on me. (laughs) (laughs) But for whatever reason, perhaps they were both so pretty that together they crossed into the uncanny valley where normal mortals simply couldn't understand them as a real couple. Much of the public was convinced that these were two gay people conducting a sham marriage while doing all these gay things professionally and having a good laugh about it. Wow. Yeah, there was also... Like, some of the rumors were pretty gross and graphic. Like, it was all very strange. So while they were both good-natured about these rumors when they were interviewed, in 1994, they did go so far as to take out a full-page ad in the Times of London. Really? Cost was around $30,000, attesting to their heterosexuality and the realness of their marriage. It read... We got married because we love each other and we decided to make a life together. We are heterosexual and monogamous and take our commitment to each other very seriously. There is not and never has been a prenuptial agreement of any kind. Reports of a divorce are totally false. 
There are no plans, nor have there ever been any plans for divorce. We remain very married. We both look forward to having a family. Good Lord. It ended with a request for the press to be responsible, truthful, and kind. Still a good message for today. Still a good message for today. Okay, so the story about how they got married was itself a little weird, I grant. So it was December of 91. They'd been together two or three years. Richard was shooting a film called Mr. Jones. And his girlfriend, Cindy Crawford, was certainly the marrying kind. She finally sits him down and says, hey, if this is not happening, I need to move on. There's stuff oh, I want. For her. I want kids. I yeah. want, you know, want to be Quit married. Quit wasting my time. So on a Friday night, with a night off from shooting. Oh, no. They jump on a private jet with some friends, including her Brits. Awesome. They fly to Vegas, and they tie the knot at the Church of the West. It was not a perfect wedding. Oh, no. What happened? Well, for starters, they didn't have rings, so they got some aluminum foil and fashioned two rings out of aluminum foil. You're joking. I am not. (sighs) Richard Gere and Cindy Crawford exchanged aluminum aluminum foil foil rings. Yeah. Cindy was not wearing white. She was in a navy Armani suit. I mean, it looked good, but it was not. Like, this poor girl. She's from, like, a moderately sized town in Illinois. Life took a turn. She finally convinces her hot older boyfriend to marry her. And it's, like, this weird dystopian thing. And I have an aluminum foil ring? Sweet lord. No white wedding for her. It's a nice day for a Navy wedding. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So the deed was done and Gear would later say it was the best decision he had ever made. But their schedules were very demanding. They were often required to be in different parts of the world. She was filming MTV's House of Style during this period. Plus, you know, modeling, which also will land you all over the world. And they found themselves frequently hopping on planes to spend a day or two together before hopping back on planes to return to work. It was exhausting for both of them. There was also a major disconnect here. Cindy definitely wanted children. Period. (sighs) This was part of her life plan. And Dick does not. Yeah. Richard would explain to a reporter, I am a child. Oh, no. So, you know, combine all that with the fact that Cindy, daughter of DeKalb, Illinois, was progressing through her 20s. She was finding her footing in the world, and it was a big, happy, exciting, money-filled world, so that's cool. She would say later that during the marriage, uh, Richard Gere would try to impress upon her that she was very young and she was going to, to change so much, and she didn't believe him. I mean, she was, you know, 25. Like, you just, you don't. You don't know until you know. I've and studied chemical engineering at Northwestern. I'm probably okay, dude. For one quarter. Come on. I mean. <laughs> All right. So yeah, then she kind of grew into herself and she realized that, you know, okay, you were right about I'm going to grow and change and all that stuff. And the choices that I made when I was 22 maybe aren't the choices that I want now that I'm 28. So they divorced. See ya, buddy. Apparently with pretty minimal rancor, like they didn't seem to have any kind of bitter drag out. I think that they were friends-ish for a long time, but um, Cindy Crawford has talked more recently about, like, if they run into each other, they're friendly. They don't socialize. But she's like, he's very much a stranger now. Like, now he has just become Richard Gere again. Right. 
And so, you know, it's... I hardly even knew him. Yeah, she said... There was one really telling thing that she said about, like, like once you're in a relationship with someone, changing that relationship is very hard. And so I, th- I think the idea was, like, the, the dynamics of, like, older boyfriend-husband to younger. Like, she was, I think, never allowed to grow up in the relationship, and that's why the relationship had to end. Is he an alright, alright, alright guy? Um... <clears throat> We shall see. Let's talk about it. We'll talk about it. All right. Friends also noted that they had very different priorities. So, you know, Richard was way further into his career than his, you know, mid-20s wife. And so his focus was increasingly on spirituality and applying Buddhist practices in his life while Cindy Crawford was still building her career in media and entertainment. I'm going to give the last words here. To Herb Ritz, who I consider the flamboyant hero of this story. I love it. Herb Ritz died of pneumonia in 2002. Um, He said, he's spiritual. Cindy gave it a try, but she's not into eating yak butter. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Herb Ritz, for so much. Yak butter. Cindy Crawford would find lasting love just a few years later. In 1998, she married model and entrepreneur Randy Gerber. And they've been together ever since. Yeah, happy marriage. Yeah, yeah. Kids and things yeah. are going great. They have two gorgeous children together, now approximately adults, who've both gone into modeling because they're that gorgeous. Wow. <laughs> Apparently their son is maybe maybe hit a rough spot, and he kicked off 2020 by getting the word misunderstood tattooed on his face. Oh. So uh, I imagine he was in great mental condition for months of quarantine. Hope all is well with him. Things have been less even keeled for Richard Gere. He married for a second time in 2002 to actress and former model Carrie Lowell. She was born February 11th, 1961. She's an Aquarius. Yeah, he just really likes the end of the Zodiac cycle, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she's like 12 years younger than he is. Okay. So closer. All right. Closer. All right. She'd been she'd been a Bond girl, and she is a Law and Order alum. This was her third marriage, and notably for you, Alicia, her second husband was Griffin Dunn. Son of trash father Dominic Dunn, and they have a daughter together. The trashy angel of my heart. <laughs> Hannah is their daughter, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Look at that. It comes back around on the trashy divorces guitar. Right. And, all the time to fun with them. And she is definitely an adult, so I guess it's okay to... We tend not to name kids in this unless it's... Unless she's sort of in the to. public eye. Is she? And she's the granddaughter of the godfather yes, the, of trash candy. The trash father. Dominic, Dominic Dunn. Dunn. Okay. So I think that Carrie and Richard started dating as things were wrapping up with Cindy. Okay. Uh, And when they married, they'd been together for seven years already. Oh, wow. They'd be married for about a dozen more before the bottom fell out. Once again, bit of an age difference. Uh, Again, 12 years this time. Still, this meant that by the time they broke up in 2013, Richard was in his mid-60s and preferring to live at a slower pace in a more secluded lifestyle, while Carrie was in her mid-50s and enjoying a much more active social life out on the town. So when they split, he was mostly staying at their upstate Bedford, New York home, while Carrie was living larger at their 12,000-square-foot, 12-bedroom, two guest houses, 300 feet of waterfront property, next door to Jimmy Buffett's Hamptons compound. Yeah. Strongheart Manor. Oh, my... Next door to Jimmy Buffett's Hamptons In the Hamptons, compound. right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. With the divorce looming, the couple apparently decided that selling Strongheart Manor was the best way to generate a heap of cash. 
to settle everything up with. So in July of 2013, Richard listed the property for a cool $65 million. There are not many properties that can boast literally next door to Margaritaville. True. 300 feet of waterfront. Wow. In the Hamptons. He had paid less than $7 million for it in Ocean. No. He's got about $58 million real estate profit on this? Well. 7 to 65 That is a hell of a price markup for being mm. next to Margaritaville. Yes. I'm sure Literally. that's. I'm sure that's what it was. <laughs> <laughs> so it seems like what followed was a period of relative calm between our star-crossed lovers until. Da 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 da! Tabloids reported that Richard had been seeing Top Chef host Padma Lakshmi on the side while he was filming a movie in New York City. Doesn't count on location. <laughs> so this seems to have triggered Carrie's June divorce filing, and at an October preliminary hearing, Richard Gere had absolutely no chill. Page six said he stormed into Manhattan's courthouse, umbrella in hand. Oh my god! Which he quote nastily wielded. Umbrella the- in hand. <laughs> Nastily wielded the pointy black umbrella like a sword, unquote, jabbing it at a photographer who was waiting for him. (sighs) Then, because life, he sat in the back of the courtroom sulking while Carrie laughed and welcomed Richard's lawyer from the same firm that had represented Bethany Frankel in her split from Jason Hoppe. Oh, my. So they fought about obvious things like child custody is always just prime dispute material where there's a minor child and a divorce. But what seemed to cause real fireworks was the disposition of the Bedford Post bed and breakfast that they had purchased and lovingly restored in the late 2000s. Oh, no. It's an eight-room inn with a fine dining restaurant and a yoga studio. And if you're not thinking Gilmore Girls, what's wrong with you? It's the Dragonfly Inn. Lorelai runs it, right? Yes. Okay. As things heated up between them, Carrie reportedly wanted $100 million of Richard's $250 million fortune because, after all, she had abandoned her lucrative television career to raise their son. Right. The sparks were flying over at the Dragonfly Inn. Wow. So Carrie had been running a literary salon there for a while with authors like Martha Stewart, Angelica Houston, and James Frey featuring. But she packed that shit up and took it over to the inn at Pound Ridge next door. (laughs) You take that, Richard Geary. Taylor Dosey. You can sell my Strong Heart Manor, but you can have my book club when you pry it from my cold, dead fingers. I love that. This is the most amazing story I've ever heard. (sighs) All right. So things seem to cool down between them quite a bit after they got their custody stuff worked out. In the salon? The winter of 2014, 2015. Wow. And by the time they returned to court in May of 2015, they were chatting pleasantly as they both read the Times waiting to be called by the judge. (laughs) Okay. Matt Lauer, he of Ultimate Dirt Baggery, who will probably be making an appearance later this season. He ended up buying Strongheart in 2016 for $36.5 million or so. And those guest houses sure did come in handy after all that mess happened in 2017, so right? Wait, they, gave, they got 30 mil off that sale? Wow. <laughs> location, location, location. All right, all right, all right. The divorce, though, dragged... It was not finalized until well into 2016. It was like a nearly four-year-long ordeal. And this appears to have dissuaded Carrie from risking another walk down the aisle. She remains independent. Richard, now 71, 
got hitched again in 2018 to a 37-year-old Spanish activist and longtime family friend. All right. Maybe not that long. All right. They welcomed a baby son into the world in 2019. <laughs> Hi, kid. I'm your dad. Congrats. I'm 70. I feel like this story has a lot of trash cans. You got a Vegas wedding with tinfoil rings. You have significant age differences at every turn. Umbrella swords, dueling inns in quaint small towns. I'm going to give this one 18 trash cans, one for each year of his life that he's been married, all filled with tasty, tasty yak butter. I think umbrella swords. That's the first instance of umbrella swords <laughs> I just love on it. trashy divorces so far. I love it so much. Well done. <laughs> that is a hell of a story, Stacey. On guard. <laughs> Mary Poppins has got nothing on me. That is amazing. Whew. All right. That's well done. Cindy and Richard and Carrie. <laughs> wow. All right. So we should probably pause for the cause. Let's take a break to hear from our sponsor, mm-hmm. and we're coming back with Whew. an all-star. Yeah, new yeah, trashy yeah. divorces all-star. A dame, Ooh. if you will. See you on the flip. Sibling fights are unavoidable, but what if every fight you had was under a microscope on a global scale? That's the reality for brothers Prince William and Prince Harry. They were each other's closest friends and allies since the death of their mother, But that all began to crack as they married and took wildly different approaches to their royal duties. Wondery's podcast, Dis and Tell, is hosted by comedians Sidney Battle and Matt Belisai. Each episode unpacks one of pop culture's most iconic celebrity feuds, and they recently took a deeper look into the real reason William vs. Harry started. It's actually much bigger than these two brothers, stretching back into the history of the British monarchy. Did their feud start with the royal family's mistreatment of Meghan Markle, or was it something that started much earlier? Follow Dis and Tell on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Alicia, when we talk about Trashy Divorces All-Stars, it means that they just never quit. I've I mean, they waiting. they quit on their marriages over and over, and, but they never quit quitting on their marriages. This one may. It took her four. Okay. I have Joan Collins today. Hey. What a lady, what a legend. Actually a dame of the British Empire, huh. awarded in 2015 by our very favorite QE2. Who knew? This story is dripping with trash candy diamonds. <laughs> Joan is born May 23rd, 1933. She's a Gemini, which technically begins May 20th, but 
Joan also lives in the Taurus Gemini cusp of energy. Sure. Who else shares the same cusp as Joan Collins? Malcolm X, Cher, Notorious B.I.G., Arthur Conan Doyle. That is the end of the astrology for this episode. (laughs) Joan Collins, married five times, divorced four times. She is an all-star. Welcome, Joan Collins. I am heavily sourcing from one of her books called Passion for Life, and I'm going to begin with her words about herself. Joan writes, Having had five husbands, I guess I should know a thing or two about marriage. And you may be surprised to learn that I still believe strongly in the institution. But no couple, I believe, should imagine that they're going to live happily ever after. There will always be arguments and pitfalls, particularly if you stupidly marry too young or simply choose the wrong person. As for me, I've made some terrible mistakes. Indeed, the sad truth is that most of my husbands turned out to be convincing liars. Hmm. Looking back now, I can see that my first four husbands all put me down, criticized, and insulted me far too often. Although only the first was ever physically violent towards me, words often linger longer than bruises. Was it my own fault that I brought out such a perverse streak in these men, or was I just a lousy chooser? Dear listeners, (laughs) I will let you decide, but Bad Picker may have something to do with this. Mm. Henrietta Joan Collins, as mentioned, Gemini girl, born in 1933, grows up in London. Not a whole lot of interest in the dudes until she is interested. She is in drama school at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts. And Joan is like, it is time for me to do it. She's 17, pretty typical. She gets a crush on a gay dude. Happens to the best of us, honey. But at like 17, 18, things are happening for Joan. She's lovely. She's talented. She gets a role starring opposite this actor named Lawrence Harvey. He's 23. He wears Savile Row suits and has a fancy cigarette holder and all that jazz. And they start dating and she wants to do it. And he's like, nope, you're too young, darling. But now Joan's 18 and she's totally ready So there's a party one night that happens where Joan Collins is straight dissed by this actress named Hermione Baddeley. Joan is crushed. She finds out that her big crush, Lawrence Harvey, is living with Hermione. Hmm. Yeah. And she's done. The crush on Lawrence is over. And he's going to feel bad. And a few nights later, he's like, let me take you out. I want to be nice because I feel crappy about the way it went down. So... Welcome husband number one. It begins. Maxwell Reed. Now, the thing you need to know is that Joan has had a poster of Maxwell Reed (laughs) on her wall since elementary school. Like you do. He's a Northern Irish actor. He's older. He's 32 to her 18. But she spent her entire elementary school career telling all of her friends that she is going to marry Maxwell Reed. And well, she does, but none of it is good. So there's a some tough stuff coming in this story. They go on their first date, and Joan Collins is raped. Hmm. He slips her what they call in those days a Mickey Finn, which are drugs. This time it was in a rum and coke. It is most assuredly rape. It is degrading. Joan is unconscious at some point. She is violently ill afterward. It's bad. It's also 1950. 
And Joan will feel like she's no longer a nice girl. Yeah. This is all my fault. So I certainly should date him. <sighs> she writes, ah, oh, foolish child. <laughs> yeah, that's the toxic. Yeah. But she's 18. Mm -hmm. And she said she had the maturity level of an 11 year old. So Joan is very flattered when he proposes. Oh, I. And Joan okay. says the sex is terrible. Oh, my but God. her mother has Joan. said that women have to put up with it. So Joan Collins will grit her teeth and think of England. We have now learned something about Joan Collins's father, too. <laughs> this is a very sad story. But the wedding day is coming closer. And Joan's like, I don't want to marry this fool. Let's just live together. And this scandalizes her parents. Her father, who is a show business agent, is mortified. But, I mean, has she told him that according to her mom, dude's a bad lay? <laughs> hey, Dad. I can't imagine that came up. <laughs> He's like, I'll be mortified if you sure. bail out of this wedding. Because, of course, his reputation is the headline in the story. Sure. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Joan and Maxwell will marry on her 19th birthday. It goes badly from the beginning. Every time Joan gets great reviews because she is a burgeoning star, Maxwell will sulk. He will not speak to her for days because of her good reviews. If another man happens to glance her way, Maxwell will threaten Joan that he is going to cut her pretty face so no one will look at her again. Really sounds like the maturity problem here was not with Joan bad it's bad the final straw occurs when joan and maxwell are out to dinner one night and joan heads to the ladies and when she returns to the table well i don't know more than just dinner had arrived there is a wealthy middle eastern businessman who is also dining that night in the restaurant and middle eastern rich guy and maxwell have worked out a great deal while joan was in the ladies the businessman is going to give Maxwell 10,000 pounds to sleep with Joan Collins. Whoa. An indecent proposal situation here? Even better, he's going to let Maxwell watch. A Falwellian indecent proposal situation here? Babe, what a great deal. We can move to Hollywood. We can get a new car. Like, you have to do this. And Joan Collins is like, uh, no the fuck. <laughs> she will leave the club. She will go to her parents' home. And that marriage, in effect, is done, at really? least in everyone's heart. Yeah, Big Pimpin' is not necessarily... Yeah, this is 1952-53, so it's going to take another three years for the divorce to actually be final. Because Joan is offered a contract in Hollywood, and she's going to go live in the land of starry dreams like so many girls before her. Also, leaving... <laughs> Let me pimp you out? Yeah. Yeah. Big Papa. Yeah. What was his name again? Maxwell. Big Papa Maxwell. Yeah, <laughs> Big Papa Maxwell. The divorce Ooh. won't happen until 1956. It will cost Joan $10,000, which she has to borrow from 20th Century Fox. Why didn't she just go up to the Middle Eastern businessman? <laughs> <laughs> it was a fortune. Yeah. It's one and done. She is like... Forget this. So Joan is actually not going to make it to the altar again until 1963. I mean, I wouldn't rush either after all that. Well, I got eight years of juice for you. Huh. It is worth a follow-up on Patreon. 
but this is trashy divorces, so I'm trying to stick the, whoa, but here are the best bits. Joan goes to Hollywood, meets everybody. Hedy Lamar, Lana Turner, Bing Crosby, Bob Hope, Sinatra tries to pick her up. And Joan has a friend. And that friend's name is Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> this is the mid-1950s. And Joan will meet Marilyn at a party at Gene Kelly's home. Marilyn is kind of at the bar in the home, kind of out of the party itself. And Joan comes up to the bar to get a drink. And Marilyn's like, hi, I'm Marilyn. What's your name? And they strike up a friendly conversation. Marilyn will tell Joan, you're a pretty girl with a big chest. And you will never be taken seriously as a person or as an actress in this town. Wow. Mm -hmm. Now, this is the mid-50s when Marilyn is about to head off to New York City. For her actor's studio phase. Right, right. And Joan Collins is coming into town, having been cast in a movie called The Girl in the Red Velvet Swing that Marilyn was originally cast for, that the studios decided Marilyn was, quote unquote, too old for. I think Marilyn was just not wanting to play whatever game that was, but... Marilyn and Joan will talk this night for a long time, and Marilyn will warn Joan about the wolves. She calls them wolves that will take advantage of you in the studios. Beware of the wolves. If the studio bosses don't get what they want, they will drop you. So Joan has this very early education from Marilyn Monroe in the 1950s. Some wise words. Old Joan's going to skip around their relationships with... Some previous Trashy Divorces mentions Arthur Lowe Jr., hmm. Nikki Hilton. Sure. There's the son of a Greek billionaire. Joan is then going to head to the West Indies to be in a little film called Island in the Sun. Hey. Which continues to keep coming around on the Trashy Divorces guitar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So, right. Dorothy Dandridge, Joan Fontaine, and now Joan Collins. We're just going to shoehorn. There's a lot of doesn't count on location. That's what Joan Collins calls it. D-C-O-L. Oh, that's great. Doesn't count on location, which happens with a lot of actors and actresses. Sure. So here Joan is going to meet 31-year-old, six feet, one inch, caramel colored with brown eyes that'll melt you, Harry Belafonte. Oh, yeah. Give me some of that. You make me want to shoot. Harry is married. He is also a notorious womanizer. Hmm. Joan is warned by one of the camera operators that Harry Belafonte's mission is to make love to as many beautiful women as he can. And you're next. And Joan is like, pish posh. But it's the 50s. And relationships with black men are not really within the acceptable limits. Yeah. Yeah. Hollywood. At least in the view of Joan Collins. Hollywood had a thing. About interracial relationships. But then there's a late night walk on the beach as he's going to fly out the next day. And Harry will invite Joan to see him (laughs) come play at the Coconut Grove back in Hollywood. Uh And she accepts. And sure enough, they're carrying on a very quiet affair in her very tiny apartment. Sure. But that will cool off because Harry Belafonte is going to go back to his wife. And Joan will move to a new lover, George England, who's an MGM producer and also very married. Hmm. Joan and George are going to have an affair that lasts about a year and a half. And Cloris, George's wife, likes to come and knock on 
Joan's door, and it's it's bad. Like, trying to bust in at all hours, and George swears that he and Cloris are not sleeping together still, but that's kind of a big lie. From us to y'all, it normally is, and sure, baby, I'm gonna get divorced, and mm-hmm. yeah. And it goes along like this for a while, and Joan's kind of looking for a way out. The name of that way out is Warren Beatty. Oh. <laughs> Who Joan thinks is cheeky and pretty. So she agrees to go out with Warren Beatty. Fuck George, right? Warren Beatty's 22, Joan is 26, oh. and wowza. Mm-hmm. Warren has a appetite for the sex. Destruction. Oh. That. <laughs> and George is mad. Joan, you can't do this to me. And Joan's like... I'm out, dude. Joan will say that she and Warren were compatible, but his appetite for sex is immense. Now, Joan's friend, Joanne Woodward, who's married to Paul Newman at that time, (laughs) tells Joan, honey, ride that train. If you don't ride it, someone else is going to. And Warren will eventually propose to Joan. And wedding plans are underway. It's announced. They're engaged. It's all happening. And Warren gets into a new movie. Perhaps you've heard of it. It's called Splendor in the Grass, where he will begin his liaison with the married Natalie Wood. Mm. And so it begins. So Joan is in Rome making a movie and kind of all bets are off. DCOL. So rumors start happening that there's something going on with Warren and Natalie. And of course, Splendor in the Grass is a hit. Warren will then be headed off to make the Roman Spring of Mrs. Stone with Vivian Lee. Hmm. And soon enough, rumors are happening about Vivian and Warren, too. Oh, also, there's that time that Warren Beatty flirts with Princess Margaret. But who hasn't? I mean... Joan says, I don't really know what happened with the two of them. Joan and Warren start fighting. Finally, the last straw is when her family comes to visit and Warren is mad they're there. Like, hmm. they're intruding on my time with you. I'm very upset about I it. I hate and... family. Well, it gets in the way of our sex, babe. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So soon after I that. I mean, you hope. <laughs> Warren, right? No, he's insatiable. She's like, this was, ex- I- I'm exhausted. Okay. I am exhausted. Soon Warren starts going for long drives and. He's reconnecting with Natalie Wood, and Joan goes off to do another movie, and that love affair is done. Joan says it never would have worked. He just loved the ladies too much. Looking at Warren's girlfriends over the years, Natalie Wood, Julie Christie, Leslie Karen, Diane Keaton, Goldie Hawn. I mean, aim high, man. Joan understands now that Warren might have been a rebound For her, which turns the tables on Warren. Sort of interesting. Sure. Uh, What else is happening? Joan is going to test for the role of Cleopatra that will go to Elizabeth Taylor. There is so much in her not married time that is not trashy divorces. And I'm pretty sure Dorothy Dandridge tried to also... Spiderwebs. Land that role. Okay. But we're here for trashy divorces. Hubby 2 happens in 1963. His name is Anthony Newley. This one lasts like seven years. Anthony is an English actor and singer and songwriter. You would know him for the song Feelin' Good, made famous by Nina Simone. Okay. Anthony Newley is a huge influence on a very young 
David Bowie. I'm not getting into anything too trashy on this one. Joan, comparatively, between Joan's first husband and fourth husband, this one doesn't rank very high on the trash scale. Joan says he just wasn't cut out to be husband material. He wasn't suited to that life. They do have two kids. They're married from 63 to, I don't know, 71. Divorce number two, done. Hubby number three. It's this guy named Ron Cass. This guy's in the music business. He's a music business executive. He'll manage the Beatles for a while. They'll get married in 1972. This one lasts, I don't know, 11 years. They do have one child. And even when they divorce, they remain really close. It is said that Ron was the best guy ever until he meets cocaine. Hmm. And he has a substance misuse problem. There's a song about that. Yeah. Written by J.J. Kale, <laughs> not is. Eric Clapton. Joan and Ron will end their 12-year union. And Joan is actually going to take care of him when he's suffering from a terminal illness further down the road. She's like, he was not a bad husband. The drugs mm-hmm. made the impact in our relationship to where yeah. he just wasn't the one. The next husband is not the one either. This guy. Trashy. Really trashy. This guy. Hubby number four Mm. is a dude named Peter Holm. He's younger than Joan. He's a pop star and a Swedish playboy with quite a active life of manipulation. Hmm. Joan doesn't know. She's fresh on her way to a divorce and there's a pool party one day. And there's this young, handsome Swede. And she's smitten. All reason has been tossed out the window. He is 36, she is 50, and there's a love affair that's happening, and Peter moves in with her, and Dynasty, right, has now begun. And Joan is definitely having the second career blossoming in life. It's great. Right. There's some things that Joan does not know. One of those is back in the mid-70s, Peter and 13 others had been arrested and charged with smuggling millions of pounds of diamonds from Belgium to Sweden. I mean, of all of the things that you could traffic, that is like, is it even a crime? Joan also doesn't know about the call girl racket and brothel ownership. I mean, tricky. everyone has baggage. So time... In this story has given us the opportunity to see what is really happening, Mm -hmm. which is Peter is using Joan for her money. Peter gets that Joan is gaga over him. And Peter has decided to fleece Joan for everything she has. There are multiple rounds of lovemaking happening per day, but he's super mean about it Hmm. when he talks about it later. Joan Collins won't even say his name anymore. She calls him the Swede. Peter will bug her home, record her phone calls. He's all about control because he needs to make a fortune from his wealthy girlfriend. Yikes. Joan will allow full control of her finances. Nope. And career. Nope. She fires everybody else. Oh, God. And Peter is now her manager, her accountant, her lawyer, oh, and her my agent. God. It's such a huge red flag. It's amazing that people still find themselves doing that like peter draws up a prenup so he can marry her as soon as that divorce from ron cass is done 
Joan will pay for everything and Peter is fleecing her. And all of Joan's friends are like, girl, you're in danger. You're in danger. This is stop. Stop the Mm -hmm. stop. Yeah, they're just coming over just with big old red flags to hang on her porch and stuff. Those are my favorite decoration. Mm, I love flags. Can we do a parade next? The heart wants what the heart wants, Stacy. Sounds like it may not have been the heart. <laughs> In 1984, Ron proposes with a five-carat diamond ring. They marry in the fall of 1985. And it was bad before, but it now it's really super bad. Oh, I'm sure. Uh, Peter's unfaithful. He's super, super unfaithful. He is seeing a married 20-year-old Italian lady who has like an 80-year-old husband. I mean, okay. He has another girlfriend, too, that he will call his passion flower. Mm. She's (laughs) young in the press reports that I have seen, and she just melts when he calls her his passion flower. And when the affair comes tumbling out, She's on the Carson show and Good Morning America and getting courted by Playboy to do a centerfold. This is 1980s trash. Oh, Peter is also going to fight with Joan's son about taking his parking space in the driveway. How dare you park in the driveway where my... Oh, Peter beats up the daughter's nanny, too. Like, um, violently yells at her and tosses her about. So, super scary, out-of-control person. Okay, great. The marriage does not last long. I am shocked. Yeah. So, Ron Cass, ex-husband, hubby number three, will get ill in 1986. And new husband, four, Peter, is mad that Joan is spending her time and energy taking care of Ron. And it's starting a lot of fights. And inside... Of 14 months, the marriage is over. By December of 1986, Joan has Peter served for divorce papers. Another trashy spiderweb. Marvin Mitchelson is her attorney. He of Palimony? He of the Palimony fame. And this court fight is nasty. Peter wants $35,000 a month in the home in L.A. and the home in the south of France. And Joan's like, that's not going to happen. And they've just been married a couple years, right? Less, 14 months. Not Jeez. even. No, they're fighting about the screws in the drawer. Uh. And she's like, if he takes that screw, that's the last screw he's ever going to get. Like, it's dynasty level trash. Gotcha. In addition to the $35,000 a month and the home in LA and the one in the south of France, Joan is also like, hey, that's not going to happen, but I'd also like the million plus dollars that's missing out of my bank account since you've been in charge of it. Like, they fight over everything. And Joan is humiliated because all of his myriad of lovers are coming out all over town saying, yeah, he told me he's been using Joan the whole time. Oh, my God. Oh, it's... uh, Yeah. There are charges of physical abuse... That he has committed on her. He gets out with about 180000 Joan is free to resume her life without the controlling Swede ass face around her. That divorce finally settles out in August of 1987. Joan's going to have some fun <laughs> for a lot of years. Not really looking for anything serious. And it stays that way for a while until Joan will meet her fifth and final husband, 
Her picker is rectified by number five. His name is Percy Gibson. He is 30 years younger than Joan. He is not a star. And Joan says, that's why it works. There's no competition. Yep. There's no fighting for the limelight. There's no Percy loves me and I love him. And the two of them get hitched in 2002. And this year they celebrated a very happy 18 years together. Jeez. Joan Collins will say that Percy is her best husband. And that does seem to be the case. Maxwell Reed and Peter Holm, one and four, are her worst husbands, Mm -hmm. according to Joan. Dame Joan Collins. A broad and a dame. Joan Collins. I love her. And a Trashy Divorces All-Star. Inducted into the Trashy Divorces All-Star Hall of Fame. As for trash cans... Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I feel like hubby number one, Maxwell Reed, should get Mm 10,000 trash cans. That makes sense. Full of Mickey Finns Mm -hmm. and bad reviews. Okay. Okay. And hubby number two, Anthony Newley, it's, I mean, that's just a regular, ordinary trash. Like, okay. Sure. It's. It's a waste paper basket. Waste paper basket. Ron Cass. Eh. Substance misuse. Long marriage. Another child. Things are... Sounds like they stayed close, though. Like... Yeah. And taking care of... Like, Mm -hmm. okay, just for the sake that it's a divorce. Like, all right. We'll throw you a waste basket or two on that one. Peter Holm. Oh, yeah. Whoa. 180,000 trash cans all filled with passion flowers. And bugging devices. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And red flags. Yeah. Red flags All for the sure. red flags. Yeah. Girl, you're in danger. Those are the trashy divorces of Joan Collins. Glad that she has got her picker worked out. Mm-hmm. She and mm-hmm. Percy doing really well. Man, I feel like she and Tina Turner would just like dish if they sat down with some beverages She's a le- who doesn't Joan Collins know? She is classy and top notch and just a star at every turn. It was a delight to mm-hmm. add her into the Trashy Divorces Hall of Fame. Deep dive into that. Love it. I have the best job in the world. You kind of do. And props to you because your laptop picked this week to like for the <laughs> hard drive to die. And so you were without your own computer for several days. I don't know if you were like researching longhand in a notebook with a pen. Yes, I was. Okay. Yes, I was. Well, good work. Good work. That is rectified and we are back in business. The laptop has been returned. Yep. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. What is coming on Patreon this week? Ooh, Trashy Witches starts with Macbeth in the first episode of that. We have some more fun with Dunn. Trashy tidbits as usual and some more surprises. If you need more trash candy, check us out over at patreon.com slash trashy divorces. Thank you for listening and spending your time with us. As always, we know it's been a very slow news week and you probably have plenty of spare time that you're not doom scrolling. So thank you for checking us out. Go have an amazing week. Thanks for squeezing us in. Catch you back next Sunday with some more trashy divorces. And until then, keep your hands clean, keep your masks on, and keep those hearts very, very trashy. So, so trashy.
Cheers, friends. Bye. Bye. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacy and Alicia, with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at CarbonMade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram and definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at TrashyDivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at TrashyDivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at Patreon.com slash TrashyDivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear. Want to advertise with us? Reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information. And last but not least, come play with us on social media. I keep most of our Trashy Divorces Instagram hopping. Stacy and I share it up over on Facebook, including our Trashy Divorces podcast discussion group. Come join us over there and thanks again everybody for listening. Keep it trashy, y'all.